Good morning. We awake this morning. Yes, good. So, if you, um, last week obviously we had Elam here, and that was really encouraging if you were here to hear about the amazing way that the, the, the church in Iran is growing. Who was here? Who was really encouraged by that? It was amazing, wasn't it? And um, the week before that, uh, if you can cast your mind back two weeks ago, which is even more of a challenge, um, Mike kicked us off in this series looking at what it means to be alive in Christ. Post-resurrection, post-Easter day, what does it mean to be alive in Christ? And we started off by looking at Colossians 1. Well, we're staying with Colossians 1 this morning, and I'm just going to read a little section um, from the middle of it, and we're going to be thinking about that this morning. So this is Colossians 1 from verse 9 to verse 14. It might, may come up on the screen as well. <clears throat> for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray that, uh, this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Now, if you, um, if you get tired in the, uh, during my talk and you want to kind of keep your attention, then see how long that sentence that Paul, read, uh, Paul just wrote there was. It's pretty long. It's pretty complicated, but we're going to look at it this morning. And uh, Mike says that the theme this morning is what it, does it mean to be alive through prayer? And we're going to come on to prayer in a little bit. But I want to start this morning by thinking about an image that Paul uses in this passage And it's an image we see quite a lot throughout the Bible, and that is the image of fruitfulness. It's there halfway through what I read, I think it's in verse 10, bearing fruit, fruitfulness. Now, if I was to ask you the question, what does it mean to be fruitful, or what does fruitfulness mean? I wonder what you would say. I would think about gardening. Does anyone here garden? Am I going to be talking to the wrong crowd this morning? Okay, now, if this helps, I'm going to be talking about how I'm a massive gardening failure, so it might put you um, at ease um, if that is you as well. Now, so when I think about fruitfulness, I think about gardening. We have this vine growing in our, in our garden, which is, it sounds really impressive, but I think it's actually come over from the neighbor's garden, which is great. So we may have some issues about who gets the produce of it at some point, but it's in our garden, so I'm claiming it's ours. Anyway, I didn't grow it. I have nothing to do with it. I don't know anything about it. But I do have a funny relationship with gardening because I really want to be a good gardener. I want to, uh, to be good at it. I want to grow my own stuff. Um, And I care quite a lot about it in theory, but there's a lot of things that make gardening difficult. And one of the things I think makes gardening difficult is the fact that um, you're supposed to apparently start gardening at the worst time of the year, right? February, March time. I do not want to go outside when it is pouring with rain, the wind is blowing, and I've got Netflix and a sofa. I'm just saying, it's not my way. So that is the first problem with gardening. Second one is about time commitment. You need to commit to 
uh, the pruning, I'm going to use these words like I know what I'm talking about, pruning, weeding, doing all the thing, watering stuff, all of that. Um, <laughs> this is going well. Um, and the, the ideal scenario is that you have grown stuff and then you can cook it and eat it, right? That's why people grow food, yeah? So you can cook it and eat it. So that's the dream, but ultimately you have to be pretty organized because if you want tomatoes for your dinner on Sunday night, you're going to have to have started about three months ago and I'm not that organized. So I go down the shops and I buy stuff because I want it right there and then and I don't think in advance. The other problem with growing things is often they fail. Like the bad weather happens or you, there's a blight. Apparently that's a thing. Someone told me this morning that was a blight was a thing. Um, or you don't read the right information or you grow stuff in the wrong place and you just, you need to kind of go on YouTube, watch the videos, get some expertise from your parents. You never asked them when you were a kid because it was boring and now you care about it. That's me anyway. You might be in that category as well. So I don't do enough research to be a good gardener. And the final thing is that actually when you start out gardening, it seems quite expensive if you're starting from scratch. You're like, well, it's much cheaper, like it's shocking, isn't it? But it's so much cheaper just to buy this stuff pre-packaged in the supermarket than ever bother trying to grow it yourself. So, I'm not a good gardener, uh, but fruitfulness, I'd love to be a good gardener. And fruitfulness for me has that image of this abundant harvest of loads of great stuff. And I've done really well, but I'm not willing to put in the work at the moment. Maybe God will change my heart with gardening at some point. But fruitfulness is a theme in the passage to the Colossians. It was a big theme for Paul in all of his writings, in all of the letters that he wrote to different churches. And it is a theme in uh, this reading that we've just heard. And fruitfulness has this connotation of abundance, doesn't it? Loads of stuff being produced, a wealth, an overflowing amount of um, prosperity and, and, and just good stuff that we've been given to enjoy. That was true um, in Paul's day, but it was especially true in Paul's day in relation to the Roman Empire. Now, in Paul's day, if we, if we know this, and that's great, if we don't, Paul um, was writing to people who lived in the Roman Empire, and if we look at the next slide, basically, pretty much everyone um, lived in the Roman Empire. You can see this map, this is about 100 years after Jesus. Um, See how many countries were part of the Roman Empire? It's pretty much everyone. He's right into the Colossian church. They're in what is now modern-day Turkey. So they're definitely in the Roman Empire. Okay, so Paul is writing to these people who live in the empire. And the Roman Empire was this most successful um, em empire that had ever been. And it had... Um, it had grown a lot, it was very successful, it had done really well, and so much so that the emperor had a godlike status in the eyes of the people. So the empire um, grew, the emperor was seen as like God, um, the Roman military ensured that this would be the case, that things um, would all work really well, that uh, things would be prosperous, things would grow, everyone was kind of happy um, with the idea that everything was um, acceptable and permissible for the growth of the Roman Empire. You didn't actually have to explain anything um, apart from saying, well, it's for the good of the Roman Empire. And everyone's like, oh, okay, that's fine. We'll go along with it then. Um, it didn't need to be questioned. It just needed to be served. 
But that was obviously a myth. It was a myth to keep people um, in check. It was a myth to keep uh, the powerful people powerful. Because behind that myth, behind the success and the fruitfulness of the Roman Empire was slavery, there was persecution, there was war, there was terror, there was power, there was greed. But there was this facade that it was fruitful, it was doing well, everyone was happy and peaceful and prosperous, so it's okay. But actually, it was about selfishness, it was about violence, it was about greed. And I wonder if there are any parallels at all for us today. Perhaps not. We don't condone slavery, hopefully, on the face of it at least. Um, But I do wonder, are there forces at work in our society that we serve in the same way that the Roman Empire was served. And we do that unquestioningly. Because these forces at work in our society still today um, have the appearance of creating fruitfulness and growth. And they're forces that appear to bring us security and prosperity, but they actually serve those in power. They actually encourage slavery and persecution and war. They actually involve terror and destruction of people, of the environment, of the world that we live in. These forces today might be rampant, and I'm going to say rampant, it's quite a strong word, individualistic consumerism. Those forces might be global economics, That is the thing that we serve unquestioningly because the fruitfulness of our economy is more important than anything else, so we need to serve it, even if there are some some consequences of it that we don't like to think about. So Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians to give them a very different idea of what it meant to be fruitful from the world that they lived in, the world around them. And maybe we need to think about what a Christian version of fruitfulness looks like in a world that says fruitfulness looks like some of those things we've just looked at. So Paul uses this term fruitfulness. He talks about bearing fruit. He does so in, um, in verse 10. He does so uh, slightly earlier in the passage um, that we didn't read um, as well. And when Paul talks about fruitfulness, he's actually um, tapping into some symbolic language that Christians and Jews would have been familiar with because the Bible before this point had been full of the imagery of fruitfulness, of bearing fruit, of what it means to be a person who is fruitful in the way that God would have us be fruitful. So we aren't aware of that because we don't live in that culture in the same way, but hopefully we can look at how the Bible is full of this rich symbolism and how it might unlock something for us. So the first time that we hear that word, um, be fruitful, do we know where it is? It's back in Genesis. Genesis chapter one, God made mankind and he said to them, be fruitful, Increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living creature that moves on the land. So what God is saying to people is not just procreate, and that's there in Genesis 1, but it's about more than that. It's about ordering the world, it's about stewarding the world in the way that God would have us do. And that means looking after the environment, it means creating a situation where animals and nature and people can all flourish together. That's what fruitfulness means in Genesis 1. 
So does that, is that what fruitfulness looks like for us today? Interesting. Then if we fast forward a little bit, so we have uh, the people of Israel coming into the promised land. And there's something else that is said to them. Fruitfulness isn't directly used, but in the next passage from Deuteronomy, which will come on the screen, um, we've also got that same idea. God says to the people, do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for, bribe, for a, a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. So again, that idea of fruitfulness is there in the passage. And fruitfulness is attached here to the idea of following God's commandments, especially the command to act with justice. So fruitfulness and justice go hand in hand according to what God is telling the people of Israel. So you just see how this picture of fruitfulness is developing and growing, yeah? And then Jesus talks about fruitfulness. What does it mean to be fruitful? And in John 15, he says these really famous words about it. He says, I am the true vine. That image, I love that. I've got a vine. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does it mean to be fruitful? It means abiding in Jesus. We cannot do these things by ourselves. We need to remain in him. We need to abide in him. So that's a really rich picture already, and that's just a few verses of what fruitfulness looks like according to the Bible. And it looks very different from the world around us. It looks like upholding justice. It looks like learning to be patient. It looks like enduring. It looks like Jesus choosing the slower, the painful, the difficult option rather than the convenient and easy one. And that's a message I tell myself when it comes to gardening. Actually, true fruitfulness is going to take some time. It's going to take effort, but it's going to be worth it. And this concern for us to be fruitful in a biblical sense is one that Paul is addressing in verses 9 and 10. Let's look at those verses again from Colossians 1. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So Paul wants the Colossians to know what God is all about so that they may be fruitful. He wants them to know God's will, know what God is uh, in the business of. And I think he makes this point so clearly and so early on in this letter that we're going to be exploring this term um, because he wants the Colossians and he wants us to avoid falling into some uh, mistakes, some problems. And the first problem is this. The first problem is that left to their own devices, 
they will know what real wisdom is. Left to their own devices, the Colossian church would know what God is about, who God is, what God wants for them. That's a problem. And Paul says here, that is not that is not going to happen. It is not possible for you to just think your way right. It's not possible without God for you to know what God's will is. Because they live in this empire where everything about their lives is dictated by serving the needs of the Roman Empire and its growth and its prosperity. That is kind of like the water that they're swimming in. It's all around them. They can't escape from the Roman Empire's way of viewing the world. And left to their own devices, they're not going to do things differently, let's be honest, from everyone else around them. Are we? We find that difficult, don't we? Left to our own devices, they will do things the same way as the world around them. And they will live the kind of life that everyone around them will live. And that would have included exploiting people. It would have included idol worship. It would have included temple prostitution. It would have included the legitimizing of violence. All of those things were the ways of the Roman Empire. Those were all things that were encouraged. So left to their own devices, that's what they would have fallen back into. And so the question for us, I guess, is left to our own devices, without God, without God's intervention, without relying on God, what are the attitudes and the practices and the habits of the world around us that we could easily slip into? What does the world around us tell us that we may end up thinking? Maybe that we need to consume more and more and more. Um, and that we're the most important people, uh, the most important thing in the whole universe, and we should get what we want when we want it and not let anyone tell us no. The world around us that tells us that um, as long as you don't know about the exploitation of people and the environment, it's okay to uh, collude in it and buy those things and continue that practice because uh, you are serving the global economy, you are serving yourself, you are serving uh, getting richer, and it doesn't matter how you do it. I think without God, it's very easy to fall into a habit that, that, that puts fruitfulness in those terms. But Paul's clear. He wants the Colossian church to be filled with God's true knowledge and know what he really wants us to do so we can live fruitful lives. And the second problem I think that Paul wants the Colossians and us to avoid is the problem um, that Mike kind of alluded to a couple of weeks ago, which is that at the time there was also this idea going around that it was called Gnosticism, that if you think the right things and if your mind and your spirit and your soul are good, it doesn't really matter about everything else because the physical world is bad and your spirit and your soul is the only thing that's good and the only thing that really matters. So you can think things and not worry about the consequences to your life, to your body, to the world around you. And Paul says, no, that's not true because right thinking, God's way of seeing the world, should have an impact on the way we live our lives. We should see the fruit in our lives, in the life of our friends, our family, the people around us. And he wants the Colossians not to fall into that Gnostic way of thinking that's saying these two things are completely separate. No, they're integrated. One affects the other. Our right thinking, our godly way of thinking will affect our actions. Our actions will also affect the way we think about things. They go hand in hand. 
And I think sometimes some of us can be guilty of this kind of, it's called dualism, two different things at war with each other. And I know for me, when I am feeling particularly zealous about my faith, particularly committed, what will I do? I will read some books. I love books. I love reading. And I'll read some really good theology books, and I devour them, I consume them, I'll read them really, really quickly, and I'll read lots of them, and I'll talk about them. Um, And I have to challenge myself sometimes to read a fiction book, because I love these books so much. But then I have to take a step back and think, have these books actually made a difference in the way I live my life? I might know the right answers to a Bible study quiz, or I might have um, all of the right information and facts in my head, but we're called to live fruitful lives. Have I learned to be more passionate, uh, compassionate or patient or loving or more like Jesus because of this? Because that's what abiding in Jesus looks like. That's what real fruitfulness looks like. So it's all very well to read these books. I'm telling myself this. But am I becoming more like Jesus as a result? And if not, I need to do some serious work, I need to ask myself some questions because that's what we're called to. And so it's clear um, from what Paul's saying that left to our own devices, we won't be fruitful in the gospel sense. We need to come to God, we need to rely on God. And in a world where we're so often encouraged to rely on ourselves, we need to be that countercultural people that say, no, I'm relying on God. My sense of what it means to be alive, to be human, to be fruitful comes from God and not from me, not from other people, from God alone. So how do we do this? Well, there's lots we could talk about, but we're here this morning, we're talking about prayer. And I do think that prayer is fundamentally essential to all of what we've talked about, to our ability to be fruitful, because it's all about coming to God and relying on God alone. And that's where Paul starts his letter to the Colossians. There's a lot, the word prayer comes up quite a lot in this first chapter, if you notice. He believes that through prayer, the church will become fruitful. Because prayer is about placing ourselves in God's presence and realigning ourselves according to God's purposes. Now, in the last um, week or so, um, two of my absolute Christian he- uh, favorite Christian heroes have passed away, really sadly. Um, one of them was Rachel Held Evans. She was 37. It was tragic. One of them lived to much longer, Jean Varnier, who lived uh, to the age of 90. And Jean Varnier, if you don't know of him, he is an incredible man. He founded the Lash community. Uh, communities that have spread across the world. And large, large communities are a place where people who don't belong can belong. They're a place often uh, for people with learning difficulties, physical dif- difficulties, and disabilities. And a place where those who the world would say they are not fruitful, they don't know how to be fruitful, they can't produce anything, they have no means of creating economic growth and prosperity, where those people can belong. And that is so countercultural, isn't it? And Jean Varnier gave his life to spending um, time with people who uh, were in that category and encouraging others to do so. And Jean Varnier wrote also wrote a great deal about prayer. And I love this quote, it will come up on the screen as well. This is one thing that he said about prayer, he said quite a lot. He says, prayer is not, first and foremost, saying prayers. It is opening the most intimate part of ourselves to God. 
It is discovering that in the deepest part of our body and our being, there is a source, and that source is God. God is the power that unites the universe and gives everything meaning. I love that because I think what he's saying is that prayer isn't so much just endlessly talking. It is reordering our lives around God because God then becomes God and we become us, humans, mortals, finite people, and we allow God's way of seeing the world to dictate how we see the world rather than the other way round. And it means that God gives us direction and purpose and meaning rather than ourselves, rather than the world around us. So we need to pray. We need to be people of prayer. Prayer is crucial if we are going to really be fruitful and if we're really going to be alive in Christ in the way that he's calling us to. And we are really excited that we're going to be launching our 24-7 prayer room um, in the next couple of weeks. Well, we're launching the, the start date will be the 2nd of June. So you can put this date in your diary, the 2nd of June from lunchtime all the way through, that's a Sunday, to the Saturday evening of that week. We will be using the upper lounge up here to um, have a prayer space where we can come, we can book out an hour slot each. There's a link there, I'd encourage you to write it down and to book a slot. You can come, you can spend time with God, you can spend time reorientating your life around who God is as well as bringing the things to God in prayer that are on our hearts. But prayer fundamentally is about saying God is God and we are us. And let's spend some time in God's presence realigning that sense of priority. So during the day, 7 till 10 p.m., you can book out a slot. We will send you some information about what that will, exact, that will mean. Overnight, you can pray in your homes, but we would love to use this week to really get the church on fire for who God is, for what God's priorities are, for how we can see God at work in the world. So do start signing up. You can do that there online. If you want to help me create that prayer room and make it beautiful and lovely, then this Tuesday at half seven, we'll be in the upper lounge creating, um, coming up with some ideas to make that prayer space work. But I do fundamentally believe that prayer is for us individually each day. It is for us as a community, but it is also this prayer week will be really significant for the life of our church so do um, do make a note of that and we're also having plans um, we're in the process of making plans to turn the vestry into a permanent prayer room so there'll be more about that later in the year but it's putting prayer at the center of our lives because it's saying that God's priorities need to dictate our priorities rather than the other way around so I don't know about you this morning and where you're at I don't know whether that resonates with you or it doesn't, but those two problems that um, I spoke about earlier, first of all, that, that struggle to um, not collude with the priorities of the world around us. I wonder if that is something that you're struggling with at the moment. I wonder if the way the world sees um, money or greed or success or ambition or pride is something that you've slipped into thinking um, thinking in a similar way to, and God is wanting to challenge that, and God is wanting to shake you out of that, or you want to, but you don't know how. If so, we would love to pray for you in a minute. Another, um, Jean Vanier also said, and this quote is quite powerful, it's very short, he says, don't be afraid of not being successful. And I think that's such a challenge, isn't it, in the culture that we live in, don't be afraid of not being successful, because successful 
is the way that the world sees fruitfulness, but God may see things slightly different. So if that's for you, we'd love to pray for you later on. But also, you may be struggling with this sense of, I know the right stuff, I've done all that reading, I can identify with that, but I don't know how to live it out. I'm struggling because there's a gap. There's a gap between my head knowledge and my heart actions, what I'm doing, how I'm living my life. And if so, that would be something that we'd love to pray for you um, about this morning. But I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna hand back to Mike and the band. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're God and we're not. We thank you that you have plans and purposes for us that are so different from the world around us. God, we pray that you would help us when we, uh, when we forget that, when we lose sight of that. We pray that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will so that we can live fruitful lives. We pray that you would empower us to do that by your spirit. We pray that you would speak to us now about how you're wanting to challenge us, to shake us, to move us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.